You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our God, it is our desire that you would open our eyes to your word and help us to appreciate and see the things that you have stored in here for us. May we behold the glory of Christ and see him and love him and obey him. And may we see in your word all that you intend for us to see this morning. We want to obey you and we want to glorify you through our obedience. Help us to adore Christ and may he be our vision and our treasure, we pray, as he is revealed in Scripture. In his name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the 11th chapter. The Gospel of John in the 11th chapter. And we are beginning this morning not only a new chapter in John's Gospel, but the new chapter uh, indicates not only a change in uh, chapter number, but more significantly a change in the ministry and the location of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the last four chapters, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, the Lord has been in the city of Jerusalem, and the teachings and the events that are in those four chapters have all all been in the city of Jerusalem, and they have revolved around primarily two feasts. The first, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, and that was in chapter 7, 8, 9, and half of chapter 10. And then the last half of chapter 10 was the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, as we would call it. And that was the second feast around which all of those events sort of swirled. So now as we move into chapter 11, we are going to be looking at events which precede and revolve around yet another feast in John's Gospel. And as is our uh, custom here, or has become our custom, I guess, as we've gone through John, before we begin another section or another large chunk of the Gospel, we're going to give, I'm going to give you an overview of what lies ahead. There are a number of benefits for doing this. First, we get to sort of zoom out, as it were, and take a bird's eye view of where our study is going to take us in the next several weeks. So we're going to back up and get an overview so that we can kind of see the direction that we're heading. And it'll also help us to to uh, pick up some of the themes that are mentioned. Sometimes when we slow down and we go through passages over the course of more weeks and we take our time mining all of the details, we can tend to miss some of the overarching themes of the larger passages. So by taking an overview, we're going to be able to catch some of those themes today. And it also helps us to sort of put together a bunch of background information all in one sermon. And this saves us time later on when we get into the minutia of it. I don't have to take rabbit trails to, to build the background information and the context. If we just take a sermon and we kind of catch all of that, it helps us to uh, later on to fit all of that into a context or a framework that we have in our minds. So today we're going to give you an overview, not just of John chapter 11, but we're actually going to cover today two chapters, John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. And that means I'm going to be reading through, yes, both of those chapters this morning as we work our way through it, catching some of the themes of those two chapters. There's a reason for grouping them together like this. Uh, one, because the events of these two chapters very naturally all fit together. You have to remember that the chapter divisions are artificial, at least as far as John is concerned, the gospel writer. Those were added later. So it's sometimes a challenge for us to read through passages of Scripture and to ignore the verse divisions and the chapter divisions. And it's good for us to do that because the chapter divisions are not there. And there are times when I wish we could just eliminate those 
And I could go in and put in my own chapter divisions to divide it up the way that it should be. But I didn't do it 500 years ago, so we're stuck just trying to ignore the chapter divisions today. Chapters 11 and 12, they fit together very nicely. There's another reason we're handling it all together, and that is because the event of chapter 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, the ramifications of that carry through chapter 12 like ripples on a pond when you throw a big rock into a pond. The ripples kind of go out from there. The resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11 it had a ripple effect that goes all the way through chapter 12. And you're going to see it as we read through that 12th chapter. And then another reason why we're grouping this all together is that although there is a lot of text, 57 verses in chapter 11 and 50 verses in chapter 12, though there is a lot of text, there are really only three key events. And most of the narrative and the conversation revolves around those three key events. The first is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. The second is in chapter 12, and that is the anointing of Jesus' body for burial by Mary. And the third is the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. So they all sort of fit together, and the themes sort of overlap, and you'll notice that as we go through it today. Let me set up a little bit of historical context before we dive into these two chapters. At the end of chapter 10, we read in 10 verse 40 that John, or that Jesus went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. So out of Jerusalem, he would have headed east across the Jordan River over into a region called Perea, P-E-R-E-A, Perea. Now, depending on where in Perea Jesus went, it was anywhere between 25 to 40 miles from the city of Jerusalem. So he went off into the wilderness, and we know from John chapter 10, verse 22, that the rest or the second half of John chapter 10 took place in the portico of Solomon at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. So depending on when the Feast of Dedication was celebrated, that would have been sometime in the month of December. The very next time marker in John's Gospel is not until John chapter 11, verse 55, where you'll see that John mentions that the Feast of Passover was near. But his mention that the Feast of Passover was near takes place after the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So how near the Feast of Passover was, we don't know. But the Feast of Passover in that year would have been celebrated in the first couple weeks of April. The next time marker that we have is in chapter 12, verse 1, where John sort of zeroes in on a time frame. And rather than just saying it was about this time or about that time, you'll notice 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So now we get to John chapter 12, and John zeroes in and telling us day by day what is going on. So from the end of chapter 10 to the beginning of chapter 12, we cover a time period of three and a half to four months from the final December in our life of the Lord Jesus, and by the way, he didn't celebrate his birthday in December, but from the final December in the life of the Lord Jesus to the final Passover in the life of the Lord Jesus. So the last four months of Jesus' life fit into the, the break between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 12. And that's significant because uh, John, though he skips over that period of time, the other gospel writers fill in some of the details so as we've done, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, whenever we hit a break where there's a, a time gap and John kind of goes from one thing to another, I have taken the other Gospels and I've filled in some of the details surrounding that, that gap, as it were, and I want to do that for you this morning. That gap of time, three and a half to four months, John doesn't mention anything that happened during that except for the resurrection of Lazarus and what happened as a result of that. But he kind of skips over that period of time, doesn't give us any of the details, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do fill in some of those details for us. So gathering from the, primarily the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew and Mark as well, 
I want to read to you some of the things that happened during these final four months. Uh, most of this what you could glean from Luke chapter 13 through Luke chapter 19. So if you want to read what happened in John during those three to four months, read Luke 13 through 19. And here's what was going on. Jesus went over into the region of, of uh, Perea. He did some teaching about the kingdom, which is in Luke chapter 13. His warning about Herod Antipas is in Luke 13. Jesus healed a man of dropsy. He gave parables about the demands of discipleship. You remember when he talked about being willing to pick up your cross and follow me and counting the cost of discipleship. And then he talked about the, the king who doesn't go to war before he counts the cost or the man who doesn't build a tower before first counting the cost. And uh, there is that laying out of the demands of true discipleship. Uh, that was in Luke chapter 14. Then the parable of the lost sheep and the coin and the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, that was a familiar passage. That's given during this period of time. Jesus taught on the proper use of money. He spoke of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. He healed the ten lepers. He taught on the subject of prayer, which is when he gave the parable of the unjust judge and the Pharisee and the tax collector. He gave some teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage. He blessed the little children. Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18. He began to predict his own death, burial, and resurrection. He healed blind Bartimaeus, and then Jesus met Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he? Well, that wee little man fits into the break at the end of chapter 10 before chapter 12. That's where Zacchaeus comes in. So though John skips over all of those details, you can tell that Jesus was anything but inactive. He was still very busy teaching and preaching in the region of Priya, performing various miracles, still doing some healings as he traveled about. And by the way, John skipping over all of those details in that period of time is a subtle indication to us that John likely was familiar with the, what, with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and didn't feel the need to give us those details. He was likely familiar with what the other Gospel writers had written, and so he skips over those things and gives us something that we don't get in any of the other Gospels. And what is it? It's the resurrection of Lazarus, only mentioned in John's Gospel. And it was incredibly significant, and John may have sat down to write this and thought, I wonder how Matthew, Mark, and Luke missed this. Because it is, it is a central, central and key event in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in these final months. So, that is an overview of the historical details. Um, oh, one last thing before we begin reading. This is the seventh of the seven signs in John's Gospel. And I know you've got all these memorized because I've been encouraging you to memorize these. We've gone through them, right? The turning of the water into wine in chapter 2. The healing of the nobleman's son from a distance in chapter 4 the healing of the man who was crippled for 38 years at the Pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, the walking on water in chapter 6, the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and now the seventh of the seven signs, the resurrection of Lazarus. And in some ways, this is sort of the capstone of all seven signs. This one, an entire chapter is given to this event and the fallout of this event, and in chapter 12, the ripple effects of this event continue to follow Jesus all the way up into the final life, the final week in his life. So chapter 11, verse 1, let's make our way through this. Normally I would give you a list of themes to look for, but I'm simply going to highlight the themes and give you some commentary as we read through. We're going to read through both of these chapters of Scripture. We're going to get an overview of this, and then we'll sort of wrap it up with a couple of, of key observations from both of these chapters. Chapter 11, verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany. By the way, that's the first time that Lazarus is mentioned in this gospel. The village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet, uh, his feet with her hair, 
whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now that Mary who wipes his feet with her hair is mentioned again in chapter 12, and it's actually in chapter 12 that Jesus gives us the details of what he mentions here at the beginning of the 11th chapter. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. The glory of God, by the way, is one of those themes that we're going to see all the way through these two chapters. The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. And by the way, that's one of those theologically perplexing things. Death and sickness to the glory of God. Ponder that for a little bit. Death and sickness to the glory of God, for the glory of God. And we'll cash out what that, the significance of that when we get to it. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Now what were they thinking of? They were thinking of what happened at the end of chapter 10, right? They picked up stones to stone him, and he left and left that area and walked away from them. Uh, supernaturally or naturally, we're not sure how that happened. But this resurrection of Lazarus, though it falls in those three to four months, likely happened sometime soon after they went into the region of Perea. Because fresh on the disciples' mind is the danger that still existed in Jerusalem. And we've gone out into the wilderness. Now you want us to go back within two miles of the city of Jerusalem, right back into the lion's den, as it were? They're still trying to kill you. And are you going there again? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Light and darkness is another theme that you're going to see in these two chapters. Verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Believe is the third theme that you are going to see in these two chapters, belief and unbelief. And I, I've, done, I've highlighted all the references to believing in chapters 11 and 12, and there's a lot of yellow on these two pages in my Bible. This is mentioned over and over and over again, this theme of belief, because John wants us to believe something and that's why he records for us the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now this is the... This is one of the ironies here in this passage is this, this reference, repeated reference to belief. I'm doing this and this is happening so that you may believe. And then he asks her this question, do you believe this? 
And her answer to that, by the way, is exactly what is very similar, almost word for word, what John wants us to believe as a result of reading the gospel. We read at the end of the gospel, these things I have written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why John wrote the gospel. Here we have right in the middle of the gospel, this confession by Mary. I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who is to come into, who comes into the world. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Interesting, verse 37. What do they remember? The previous sign. If he can make a man to see... Can he not make a man, keep a man from dying? If he can give a blind man sight, can he heal the sick? They believed he was a miracle worker. But notice what they do not say. They do not say, can't he who made the blind man to see raise this man from the dead? They don't have that faith, do they? What did, what did everybody present need to understand? That he's the resurrection and the life. That he simply speaks and the dead rise. That's what he said in John chapter 5. Wasn't it? John chapter 5, the day will come when they will hear the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and they will live to a resurrection of judgment and to a resurrection of eternal life. And here we are going to get a glimpse of what that looks like when he simply speaks the word and the dead come forth from the, from the grave. Verse 38, so Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So what was the results of the miracle? Some believed. This was the point. If you believe this, you will have life. Do you believe that what I'm saying is true? Do you believe me? Do you take me at my word that I am who I said I am? Yes, Lord, we believe. We believe this, this, and this about you, but there's this gaping hole in their belief. And then when he raises Lazarus from the dead, the Jews say, we believe. They saw it. This was a remarkable sign. And so some of them believe, but not all of them. What do some of them do? They're going to go tell the Pharisees what had happened. So they rush into the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, 
You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, they have been wanting to kill him since chapter 5, verse 18 in John's gospel. When he, when he claimed that he and the Father were one, that the, he works because the Father is working, they understood what that was. His claim to divine sonship was a claim to deity. They got that, and they have been trying since chapter 5, verse 18 to kill him. Unsuccessfully. They have tried to seize him. They have tried to stone him. But now, for the first time, they have come together and they have actually begun to plan the deed. They cannot leave the murder of Jesus up to mere chance. Just the opportunity to grab him here or to grab him there. They can't leave it up to these, these bumbling fools who have tried to kill him in the past. Now they begin to plot it and plan it. That's why John says in verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went out from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So this is their plan. Not only do they have a plan, now they have a perfect opportunity. When he comes to the feast at Passover, that's when we'll get him. If he's going to be a faithful Jew, an obedient Jew, which they knew he was, then he would have to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So that's going to be our opportunity. So they have a plan, they have their motive in place, and they have the perfect opportunity, which was Passover. And by the way, not only was that their plan and that their purpose, but it was also the plan and purpose of the Father. It was also God's plan. God's plan was not for him to die at the Feast of Tabernacles by stoning or at the Feast of Dedication by stoning. It was the plan and purpose of God that the son should die on a cross on Passover, not any other Jewish holiday. So not only was their plan their plan, their plan was actually carrying out by their own wicked deeds the very thing which God had ordained from eternity past that his son would die at this time. Verse uh, Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, notice the mention of Lazarus in verse 1. Also notice that we are in the final week of the life of the Lord Jesus. We're six days before Passover. So we're down to the final week. And now John is going to begin to slow down and give us some details of what transpires in this final week in the life of Jesus. So we're six days before the Passover, and John again mentions Lazarus. And you're going to see as we go through chapter 12, Lazarus is significant not just to chapter 11 and understanding the Jews' desire to kill Jesus. Lazarus is significant to the events in chapter 12 as well. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, 
but you do not always have me. And now Jesus begins to speak of his burial, his death, as if it is something close. We've seen him speak of his death in the past. I give my life for my sheep. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me, but I give it of my own accord, by my own initiative. We've heard Jesus speak of his death and his resurrection in the past. Now he begins to speak of it in terms that are very personal and also very near. He's talking about the day of his burial. Verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So word is spread. Word is spread about Lazarus. This is such a, a monumental miracle, such a magnificent event, that, that people are hearing about Lazarus. And at the feast, guess what everybody's talking about? Jesus and Lazarus. And Lazarus is here. He was dead. People are seeking out Jesus, and not just Jesus, but also Lazarus, because they had heard what had happened to Lazarus. And many of them were going away, having heard Lazarus' testimony and having seen Jesus, they were believing in Jesus. Verse 12, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, there's the theme of the glorification again, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. Everybody's talking about what? Lazarus. See, this is why, I wonder why Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't mention this. This final week of the life of the Lord Jesus, Lazarus is the the topic du jour, which is also the topic of the day, by the way. It is what everybody is talking about. Everybody wants to hear about Lazarus. People want to see Lazarus. They want to hear from Lazarus. This is so magnificent. Verse, where do we leave off? 18. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Notice John's emphasis on the world again. That's significant because not only were the Jews coming to the feast to hear Jesus, to see Lazarus, talking about him and believing on him, but look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship at the feast. (laughs) The Pharisees say it's the world that has gone after him. It's not just the Jews that are interested in this. Now we have Greek proselytes to the Jewish faith who are also hearing about him and believing in him. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, 
This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, much of what we're getting at the end of chapter 12, by the way, is Jesus' mention of his death. You notice the mention of wheat and grain falling to the earth and dying and bearing much fruit in verse 24. And now he has come to this hour and he says, glorify glorify your name to the Father. And then he says in verse 32 that he was going to be lifted up from the earth, signifying the manner of his death. Now in these final days in the life of Jesus, it is his death that he is talking about. The implications of his death, the timing of his death, what is happening through his death. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, now notice the the theme of light again, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. So the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Now, watch John's commentary and explanation of their unbelief. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So what is John's commentary on the unbelief of the nation? Though a few of the Pharisees believed, many of them did not. Why not? In order to fulfill the word of Isaiah who said, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they will not believe. They could not believe because they would not believe and they would not and could not believe because God had hardened their heart. This is a very difficult thing to address, but when we get into the end of chapter 12, you're going to see there is a judicial hardening where God hardens the heart of the unbeliever so that they will not believe, and it is an act of God's justice upon those who refuse to believe the truth. That's why it says in verse 37, he had performed so many signs before them, but they would not believe. They remained in their unbelief, and so their hearts were hardened. And then they would not believe, because that was the justice of God. It is a just thing for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. It is a just thing for God to harden the heart of somebody who will not embrace the truth, even in the face of so much light, just as these Jews had done. Now verse 44 through verse 50 is kind of a summation of everything in the Gospel of John up until this point. And I really can't wait to get to this passage. Not that we're going to go through it very slowly, but it's almost as if everything that Jesus has said is now summed up at the end of chapter 12. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And and almost, by the way, one more thing. Almost every phrase here has a parallel to something earlier in John's Gospel. Almost every phrase. Uh, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. 
If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now that takes us to the end of chapter 12 all the way up into the night before the crucifixion. That's where chapter 13 begins. So those two chapters, three main events, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, the anointing of Jesus for burial, the triumphal entry, and then commentary about unbelief and Jesus is summing up what he is saying, what his ministry is, and presenting them with the opportunity to believe, the command to believe, and the promises that are given to those who would believe. Now let's wrap up chapter two, sorry, chapter 11 and 12 with two quick observations. First, you will notice that the theme mentioned more than any other theme in those two chapters is the, is the word belief and unbelief. That is all the way through both of these chapters. Everything here is intended to be given to us to, to almost compel us to believe. The resurrection of Lazarus was such a, a remarkable event, such an enormous event. It is really the sign of all signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, in, in one sense, each of these signs sort of builds on another and reveals something different about the Lord Jesus Christ. But you get to the resurrection of Lazarus, you get to the end of chapter 9, and the man who was born blind, given sight. And you might ask yourself, is there anything that he could do to top that? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. The seventh sign, the resurrection of Lazarus, that tops it. To give sight to the, to the blind is an act of deity from the Old Testament. To give life to the dead is even beyond that. That is, that is a sign that was so well known, so well circulated, so well talked about, everybody was talking about it, and the evidence of that was Lazarus walking around amongst the people talking about it. Yeah, I died, and now I'm here. And everybody who saw that was talking about it. For us to read of that account and that miracle, and then to read in verse 37 of chapter 12, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were still not believing. Your jaw just has to hit the floor. And you say, what would it take to convince these people to believe? What is the answer to that question? What would it take to convince them to believe? If these miracles do not do it, what would do it? The only thing that can make an unbeliever believe, is not more evidence. What is it? It is regeneration. The heart must be changed. The love for darkness has to be changed to a love for light. The nature has to be changed. There's no amount of evidence that could make them believe. There was nothing that he could have done which could have compelled them to believe and made them believe or convinced them to believe. Nothing. That's John's point. After all of this, after all of these signs, they still were not believing in him. And that is to remind us of what John said back in chapter 3. They did not come to the light because they loved darkness rather than light. And they did not want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. It was the love for darkness by the unregenerate heart that is the problem with these Pharisees, not the lack of evidence. And that's what one of the things that John chapter 11 reminds us of. The second theme that is all the way through this is this palpable sense of death that hangs over both chapters. Did you notice that as we read through? It is, a, it is a cloud of death that hangs over these two chapters, and you can almost feel it. Lazarus dies. 
And then they begin to plot the murder of Jesus. And it's not just the murder of Jesus. Then they begin to plot the murder of Lazarus. And Jesus begins to describe his own death about wheat that must fall to the ground and die. Uh, she is doing this to, for the day of my burial. And he begins to speak of the manner in which he would die. He would be lifted up before all men. He begins to expound upon his death. And it's the subject. And all of this happens around Passover, which reminds us of what? The death of the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn in Egypt. It is death, death, and death that is all through these two chapters. And in the middle of that palpable cloud of death that hangs over these two chapters is this one bright light. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the light. Here's the conflict. The one who is the resurrection, his enemies are plotting his death, his murder. And he is speaking of his death. And he is talking about his death. And he is describing his death. At a, at a holiday that celebrates God's deliverance through death. How is that going to work out? How is it that this one who is the resurrection is going to die? Well, you and I know the end of the story, right? As it turns out, he had to die so that we could live. And it is through his death that we live. It is because he died that we can live and that we do live. And without his death, there is no life. And so he is the resurrection and the life. Now turn back to chapter 11, verse 1, for one moment. And when you're there, I want you to put a bookmark there, because that's where we're going to begin next week. (laughs) All right, that's an overview of chapter 11 and chapter 12. That's a lot of text of Scripture, but when we get to the end of chapter 12, we are going to be right up to the night before the crucifixion. And yet we're still a long ways away from that in John's Gospel. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful for what your word teaches us concerning the life and the ministry of your son. The promises that we have read here in this word about the one who believes in you and believes in the resurrection and the life, living and having eternal life, those are for us. And we are grateful that you have made us to believe. You have opened our eyes to the truth. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. We thank you for all of that work which you have done. It was not the evidence that convinced us. The evidence may have played a role in showing us the truth, but ultimately it is the regenerating work of your Holy Spirit that has given us life, and we thank you for that. We thank you that it is your work and that you do it for your glory, and we thank you, our gracious God, for making us the beneficiaries of such marvelous grace. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the salvation and eternal life which is ours because of what Christ has done. Thank you for giving us the faith to believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. We do believe in him. It is our joy and pleasure to do so. And we pray that you would increase and strengthen our faith still more and more and gather us all into your eternal kingdom. We pray, those who believe in Christ, that he would be glorified in and through us. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.